great joys of my life is exalting the name of the Lord together with my church family. I want to read from John 18. This is a parallel passage to what we looked at in Mark 14. I just think it gives a few more details that I want you to have in your minds and in your hearts as we look to the better kingdom that Jesus has come to provide for us. So just listen to John 18. Verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he entered and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Let's pray. Together, Father, again I ask that what you want us to know and understand from your word, may that be what we proclaim. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, of course, you may be seated. That was John 18, but um, most of what we focus on will come from Mark 14. I wanted you to see there on the front end that uh, there was an occasion there in the Garden of Gethsemane as they came against him that Jesus just sort of spoke and they all fell down. Friends, they could have brought every human being on planet earth to come against Jesus that night. Every single human being on the planet. And they would not have been been able to overpower Jesus. See, Jesus is not overpowered in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's not bound by them because they came in greater force than him. He's only bound by them because he willingly goes to the cross. And one of the things I want us to really consider this morning is what is power? What really is power? Because Jesus reorients us to what power really is. If you ever have a conflict with someone, your natural instinct will be to exert power in a very worldly way. And in this passage, we see that Jesus, for those that belong to his kingdom, redefines what power itself is. I'm going to preach a message entitled, The Better Kingdom. In order to understand the message, I think theologically we should understand that all of us are living in a kingdom, either of our own making, that will very quickly disintegrate, or we are investing in the only kingdom that stands and the only kingdom that will last. See, here's how the kingdoms of the world work. I've gotten a little help from the church family, just to use an illustration as we get going. So I borrowed some shirts that are going to look familiar to those in the church family. And, and many of you will appreciate this pretty quickly, I think. So here's a couple of shirts that I got. Number one, how about this shirt? Wake Forest 
demon deacons. I've always been a little bit perplexed by that, um, uh, what's the nickname, you know, the demon deacons. We have none of those here, by the way, so that's, that's good. Here's the number two shirt. Anybody feeling this shirt this morning? You can go on, you, you know, you, you, North Carolina State Wolfpack, all right. We've got, nobody's excited about this in 2021, you know, if we had an Abilene Christian shirt, maybe we'd be a little more excited. There's our Duke. I know some of you are Duke fans. I mean, it's okay to acknowledge that you are. And then here are the Tar Heels, right? So this is kind of college football, or not college football, college basketball country. Again, not a great year for, for it in 2021. But you have loyalty to one of those teams. And if you're loyal to, say, North Carolina State, you feel a certain something towards University of North Carolina, Right? And a rivalry, and in order for your kingdom, this is the illustration, in order for your kingdom to advance, you have to go against the other kingdoms, right? I mean, how, how do you demonstrate your loyalty? You cheer for that kingdom, you attend those games, you keep up, and, and really you want your team to recruit better players. You look back in the past, and if you're of a North Carolina State, you love to talk about David Thompson and overcoming you know, UCLA in their prime. Or if you're a Duke fan, you point back to the Leitner days or the whatever days, and here's when we won the national championship. We go to the Final Four every year. If you're a North Carolina fan, you talk about Jordan, and you talk about the Banners, and if you're Wake Forest, you talk about Tim Duncan, and you know about Randolph Childress when he just obliterated everybody in the ACC tournament back in 1996 or so. So, right? I mean, that's how you exhibit loyalty to your kingdom. And for your kingdom to advance, one of the others has to be diminished. And what I'm trying to get at is, when you talk about those kingdoms, it's how the world will always work as an illustration. You say, look at the scoreboard, right? Who scored the most points? What Jesus is doing here in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it is so important for the people of God to understand this, is he's telling us, your whole life, you've looked at the wrong scoreboard. You've pointed at the wrong place. Because we don't have State, Wake, Carolina, and Duke, but we do have Pharisees, Sadducees, Scribes, Zealots, Romans. And we can go through the list of how those names have changed over time. And in 2021, we don't use those titles, but very much the same people still building kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, he says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. This is really important. We're all prone to seek to build the kingdom of God as if it were a kingdom of the world. And Jesus exhibits to us here you need to put the sword away because that's not how power is displayed in my kingdom. A couple of points I want to pull from this passage. You see it so clearly. We'll just maybe put it this way. We see some people displayed here. We see Judas, right? We see John Mark. He's a young man who fled. <laughs> we see Caiaphas. We see a high priest. We see Simon Peter. And they're all loyal to a kingdom. And we see how God's kingdom doesn't operate like the kingdoms of the world. If you live a life of loyalty to a worldly kingdom, you'll either be corrupt, cowardly, or compromised. 
That's what happens here with all the people displayed in the passage, save one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, what do you really want in the world? What do you really desire to see happen in the world around you? What do you debate with people about? What do you post about? What is your life about? I know this sounds rather dramatic, but nothing matters more than this. What kingdom are you serving? If we were to ask the question in this passage, what does Judas really want? What does Simon Peter really want? What does Caiaphas want? One way to answer that is that they want the kingdom that they're loyal to to advance. So when you live for a kingdom of the world, you'll always ultimately go against God and you'll seek to hurt or harm other people. It's how it will always work. Disobedient to the greatest command, impossible to obey the second greatest. If you don't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you'll love yourself with all your mind, soul, or strength, and you won't love your neighbor as yourself. But when you live for God's kingdom and you really submit to him, you'll live for the good of others, even if they hurt or harm you. So, man, when Carolina plays Duke, I wish I was not this spiritually immature, but I get my emotions involved. And I sit there, and, and, it's, and it's like it doesn't matter who the people actually are. If they've got this uniform on, I'm going for them. And that's sort of how it works in the world. So let's, let's see if Jesus can help us say, let's look at the right scoreboard. Let's start with this point. The kingdoms of the world are built upon deception and the sword. The kingdom of God is built on truth and grace. The kingdoms of the world are built on deception and the sword. We see that right here. While the kingdom of God is built upon truth and grace. Now you know this already. Judas, as he approaches Jesus, you know, if you know the setting, it's, it's dark outside. I mean, it's the middle of the night where Jesus has been praying and agonizing over the cup that we studied the last time that we were together. And so when they come, they're bringing their torches, they're bringing their lanterns, but it's hard to see. And so Judas has keyed them in. You just pay attention to the one that I go up to and the one that I greet with a kiss. That's Jesus. That's the one you set your focus on. And the way that friends in the culture at the time, and it's still this way in many places in the world, would greet one another as they'd walk right up to each other and they'd kiss on the cheek. This is my friend. And so Judas uses the custom of friendship to identify the one he seeks to betray. What is that? It's deception. It's him saying, I'm your friend when he's not really there to be his friend. Now again, as we saw in John 18, John records that Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and says, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. You see? All he has to do is speak. All he has to do is say a word, and they can't come against him. They've come at night. They've come in large numbers. They don't arrest him in the temple in daylight when he's teaching because so many people present were interested, if not supportive of Jesus. Now they found him with just a small number of allies in the garden. It is an ambush. And then they bring him to a trial, again, done in a deceptive way. Trials weren't held at this time of day. They're not done in this way. They're not done at this hour. Witnesses are brought forth and told ahead of time of what to say. 
Many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. You could almost hear the chief priests groan when they can't get their story right. Paul Tripp writes in his book, All, this is what sin does to us all. At a deep and often unnoticed level, sin replaces worship of God with worship of self. It replaces submission with self-rule. It replaces gratitude with demands for more. It replaces faith with self-reliance. It replaces a rest in God's sovereignty with a quest for personal control. We live for our glory. We set up our rules. We ask others to serve our agenda. We strike back when we think we've been wronged. We're all concerned with being right, being noticed, being affirmed. And if lying or violence are required, we'll implement those weapons to protect and advance our kingdom. I mean, Peter is quite the case study in Mark chapter 14. This might be helpful. You know who the primary witness and primary source behind the writing of the gospel of Mark is? Is Peter. It's Peter. He's saying, this is what I've done. He's no longer in the writing of the gospel of Mark as the Holy Spirit inspires. He's no longer being what? He's no longer being deceptive. I mean, all through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Peter arguing about which of them is the greatest. He's the one that makes the big claims. Even if everybody else forsakes you, I will not deny you. Even if I have to die with you, I'll never leave you. And then in verse 56 of Mark uh, uh, 14, or, or I'm sorry, verse 66, Peter's there in the courtyard warming himself by the fire, denies even knowing. I don't don't understand what you mean. And getting to the point as the intensity level rises that he invokes a curse upon himself. You've heard about the flight or fight, you know, response. When stressful situations come, we either flee or we fight. Peter kind of does both, doesn't he? But do you see that Jesus does neither? So it's not just flight or fight. Sometimes it can be faith, Amen. And the rooster crows in the morning, and then Peter realizes what he's done, right? And as I read the rooster crowing in the morning, uh, one of the verses from God's Word that came to my mind was, you know what else happens in the morning? His mercies are new. So which is crying out louder to you, that rooster? And can we all agree roosters are a little bit annoying when they start screaming, it's morning! That's what it, I think that's what they're saying. Still small voice. Have mercy. I have mercy to give you. So perhaps this morning, as we talk about the lying and deceiving that's clear in Peter's life, you might be in a season of life where if you were honest, you'd say, I'm lying about some things, deceiving about some things. Well, God's goodness begins to work in your life the moment you resolve that I'm no longer going to live that way. And I can assure you, his mercy is new, and it is glorious. We tend to be deceptive even about our deceiving, right? Nobody likes to say, I lied. We we would rather say, I misspoke. Uh, I exaggerated. I exercised poor judgment. I wasn't truthful. Even sounds better than, I lied. I was reading this week about uh, 
sociological experiment that someone named Noelle, if I'm, right, if I'm saying the names right, Noelle Rodriguez and Alan Rightgrave did. Uh, it's been a little while, it's 15 years ago or so, but uh, they wanted to do a sociological experiment to just see if people could be truthful about how often they lie. And, and so they asked the participants to think ahead of time, would they describe themselves as, as honest? Guess how many people said they're honest? All of them said we're pretty honest. And so they said, what we want you to do, if you can be truthful, it's going to be anonymous, just write down when you lie. Just keep a journal, and if you say something that's not the truth, just, just write it down. So here's the results. Even those who had assured the researchers they were truth-tellers turned in journals filled with falsehoods. One woman promised a friend she'd watch him play basketball when she had no intention of doing so. A mother told her child they wouldn't go swimming because the pool was closed when it wasn't. A healthy young man said to his mother to tell a friend he was too sick to go to the movies as he'd promised. Another said he'd help a friend move, then pretended he couldn't because of a previous engagement. What stuck researchers and subjects alike was how casually the lies were conveyed. Few were planned in advance. They slid into conversational flow as a car merging into an uncrowded freeway. And as I read that and thought about my own life, I'm so grateful to be able to say that God never lies. Amen? He cannot lie. He can be trusted. I think it's also well worth our time to consider. I believe that when Peter does pull out his sword and take a swing, number one, I don't think he's going for Malchus's ear. Can we agree on that? No one pulls out the sword and says, man, I'm going to really get him and cut his ear off. I think he's going for the head. I think it's a kill shot. And Malchus, maybe some lantern light caught it and sees it coming and he ducks or moves or whatever and cuts his ear right off. And I do think that Peter thought when he did that, he was doing the right thing. Why? Because our tendency is to think the kingdom of God advances in the ways that the kingdom of the world advance. And can we take a time out and just appreciate, we've been studying verse by verse through the gospel of Mark, and can we not agree that the disciples have, have very rarely understood what Jesus is about, what he plans to do, and how his kingdom does advance. He's told them a number of times. We could go back just a couple of chapters in Mark 14, and he says, the Gentiles lord it over you, but my kingdom will not be like that. My kingdom the greatest is the one who, does anybody remember? Who serves. And that's where he says, I have come. It's Mark 10, 45, I think. I have come not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. What shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Remember what one of the things was? Shall danger or nakedness or famine or sword. The most natural thing to do when a group comes against you with clubs and swords is to respond with what? With clubs and swords. So when the kingdoms of the world bring their swords and clubs, those who belong to the kingdom don't answer sword for sword, swing for swing, uninformed post for uninformed post, yell for yell, character defamation for character defamation. The greatest danger we have is to try to build the kingdom of God while actually advancing our own kingdom and then co-signing Jesus' name to it. And Jesus says, 
put the sword away. Malchus, heal your ear. I'm going to the cross because the kingdoms of the world are about deception and swords. The kingdom of God advances by truth and grace. Let's consider this point as well. The kingdoms of the world, second, are built on a false understanding of power. The kingdom of God is built upon real power. So let me just ask you, who do you think is the most powerful person you know? Who's the most powerful person that you know? And immediately, the word power brings up certain ideas, right? The powerful are the physically strong or the powerful are the ones in power, that's <laughs> how we use the word, right, of, uh, of intelligence, highly intelligent, or the powerful are the wealthy. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom or the mighty man in his might, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands the Lord. It's Jeremiah Chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. In, uh, in other words, we tend to identify power in the very places God has said don't boast in them. We'd say the powerful is Pilate. But I want you to, perhaps this would be helpful, really examine Pilate as we head to Easter. Is he powerful? He's not powerful. Is he free? He's not free. Is a rich young ruler, is he powerful? Absolutely not. You see, the the irony, and I believe it's a divine irony, is when you look for power in the places the world says, here's where power is, you'll find that those things aren't freeing. They're actually taking away your liberty. We've seen this all through Scripture. The fall... I think theologically understood correctly, was a power grab. Adam and Eve sought power and dominion that didn't belong to them. And, And all throughout the record of Scripture, we see that God works not through the seemingly powerful, but through the seemingly weak. We see this all through the Scripture, don't we? In cultures that esteem the firstborn, we see God working through Abel, not Cain, Isaac, not Ishmael, Jacob, not Esau, Joseph, not Manasseh, Moses, not Aaron, David, not his bigger, stronger brothers. In a world that esteems beauty and in those, particularly the Old Testament, uh, women who have lots of children, God works through Sarah and Tamar and Ruth and Bathsheba. God again and again works through people who are outside the world systems of power. It's forgotten Joseph, betrayed and sold by his brother that God uses. It's Ruth, uh, the woman from another country that he uses. It's David who overcomes Goliath, not with another giant, but being a seemingly weak shepherd boy. And y'all, this doesn't happen every now and then. It's the narrative of the Bible. But it's not just because God sort of roots for the underdog. Because I think we could understand the point I just made and then take another step of misapplication. It's because he's telling us something of eternal importance. His kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world. Jesus chooses the powerless 
over the powerful, but it's not doing so in order to merely have them exchange places. And I think this is important. Because I think there's a part of us that would say, and this is honestly the Jewish hope of the Messiah coming against Rome. Rome is in charge, and so the messianic hope was someone will come along and will swap us with them. Now, we who are powerless will become the powerful, and those who used to be powerful will become powerless, and they'll get what's coming to them. Well, praise God Almighty, the narrative of the Bible is not, I'm going to get what's coming to me. The narrative of the Bible is, Jesus is going to take what I deserve in my place. And so it's not about a power swap. It is about a reorientation of what power is to begin with. And Jesus says, if you want to know what real power is, look at me. The last argument that you have, if you were to revisit it in your mind, I mean, we're all sinners, right? I mean, the, the, the last real, what we might call power struggle. I know so often in my life when, when I have an argument, I'll, I'll go back in my mind and I'll revisit it and I'll replay it. Wide open panoramic view of my sinful heart and I'll, I'll begin to think to myself, I'll, I'll, I'll re-argue, I'll re-litigate the whole thing, right? And I'll think to myself, man, I wish I would have said, oh, this would have been a good line if I would have done this. The, the kingdom of God reorients ourselves in such a way that I believe, as I've studied the Scripture, what we ought to do is we could go back and the question isn't, how could I be proven right? It would be, if I, had to go, if I could go back, how could I have better served? How could I have better put someone before myself? The, the gospel of Jesus Christ redefines for us and it doesn't redefine in the sense that this is what it used to mean, now this is what it, no, it's, this is what it's always meant, and we have to come back to seeing that true, the truly powerful will leverage their power not to condemn or control others, but rather leverage their lives in order to serve others. Let's go back here to Mark chapter 10 and look at this passage I alluded, it to, alluded to it earlier. Well, let's see it. Because there's a time that James and John, these disciples, asked Jesus to make them powerful. Maybe this will help us understand what I'm trying to get at this morning. Mark 10, verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us... To sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. What do they want? We want to be powerful. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able to do that. Jesus said to him, the cup that I drink, you will drink with the baptism which I am baptized. You will be baptized, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know those that are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. 
Their great ones exercise authority over them. We're listening? But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What's the controlling impulse of your heart? Being served or being a servant? I give an everyday illustration of, of this. Um, the other day at the house, uh, I was sitting and Julie was about to take the children to practice. And so raising four children in our house, I was about to have something that's pretty rare in my life. Quiet. Uninterrupted stillness. It's like gold in my house. I love my family. I love my children. But it's an active house. My children, my children probably say one of the most frequent things I say is, calm down, be still, be quiet. And so before me was a 30 to 45 minutes I had a book I was going to read, and as Julie was leading, headed out, she paused in the laundry room, and I said to myself, please don't, please don't. And then I heard the unmistakable sound of the dryer door being opened. She scooped up the laundry, and I wouldn't even look as she entered the living room and put the laundry eight feet away from where I was sitting. She didn't say anything, didn't imply anything didn't expect anything, didn't require anything, but now I'm eight feet away from the laundry that needs to be folded. She's leaving. She has to leave because she's got the children have to be where they need to be. And so I ignored the laundry and opened up my book and tried to read. Got my 30 minutes uninterrupted. And I began to, this is just me, I began to rationalize in my mind, Mary Clara should do the laundry. That will teach her responsibility. She'll get home. It's important for the children to have chores and responsibility. Abel can help with that. This is my time to do what I'd like to do. I pull my weight around. I mean, I started getting a little self-righteous around. I pull my weight around here. I can take a few minutes for myself. And then there was another part of me that was saying, I should probably do the laundry. I told that part of me to be quiet. <laughs> and I'm gonna think, about, think about it now. Think about everything that Julie does around here to serve and help. She's always serving. It's a small thing, Brandon. It'll take you five minutes. Fold the clothes. And I'm sitting there in my chair in a full-on spiritual battle. And I mean that. You say, it's a small thing. Question, is it a small thing? You know what, the small things in your life are actually the big things in your life. Because yes, we can talk about sort of globally kingdom of God, kingdoms of the world, but it's as near as the laundry. Are are you going to live in your house expecting to be served or... Are you really going to be great? That's what Jesus is teaching us, right? This goes for the house. 
It goes for the church. It goes for where you work. It goes for where you go to school. It goes for everywhere that you go. I will go on and tell you, I folded the laundry. You probably knew that because I'm actually sharing the story with you. You know, I don't share the stories when I, you know, don't do the laundry. That's another part of my sinful deception that I should repent of. But I also want to say with a caveat, I folded the laundry with Jesus. I I don't mean that in a, I mean, I mean that. I folded the laundry with Jesus because he's a servant. And if I'm going to be with him, I'm going to be serving. I think somewhere where we get stuck in life is we say, we want more of Jesus in my life. But do we? Because you're not going to get more of Jesus in your life without more serving. I mean, Jesus is the one who got up at the Last Supper. He's the one who washes the feet. He's the one who stays steadfast in prayer when everybody else is sleeping. By the way, I think a take-home, Peter gets out the sword, takes a swing when he shouldn't, when he's preceded by prayerlessness. And I'll just tell you, a prayerless follower of Jesus, if there's even such a thing, a prayerless church, is always going to respond wrongly instead of rightly. And here goes Jesus. Man, there's a word I just can't get over that is in Mark Maybe it was in John, but it's the one in one of the two. And Jesus left the Garden of Gethsemane. Did you hear the verb? Bound. The Son of God bound and led astray. The Son of God spit upon. They covered his face and smacked him and said, Prophesy, which one of us hit you? Holy Spirit, help us to see what real greatness is. Because here's where we're, what we can see as well. The third point. The kingdoms of the world give burdensome demands The kingdom of God offers grace that frees us from all burdens. Jesus put it this way, hey, what's it profit if you gain the whole world and you forfeit your soul? As you pursue the kingdom of self, the burdens don't get lighter, friends. They don't. They get heavier and heavier and heavier. The kingdom of God is the kingdom that gets rid of all the burdens. I want to read one paragraph uh, from this book. It's by Tim Keller. It just came out. It's called Hope in Times of Fear. It's my book recommendation for the week. Uh, Tim Keller was diagnosed about a year ago with pancreatic cancer. Medically speaking, his days in this life are few. And I think he's so wise that he chose to spend this year thinking a lot about the resurrection. Uh, And so I want to read something he wrote. It's on page 69. 
Just listen to what he says in light of what we've studied. He says, the message of the gospel of grace does not appeal to the powerful. Our instinct is always to take credit for any success in life. We believe we've achieved our position only through hard work and moral fiber. We've earned everything we have. So any religion that appeals naturally to the competent, the confident, the successful, will support this understanding. The message that will make sense to human beings is, pull yourself together, be disciplined, be moral, be good, earn your blessing and God will give it to you. A message that will not make sense and that will threaten our self-image at its core is this. You are a lost sinner. You've done many wrongs. And even the good things you've done have largely been done for self-interested motives. All your strivings, even religious ones, have been ways to get control of God, putting Him in a position so that you think He will have to serve your interests. Everything you have is a gift from God, and you're not loving Him and living holy for Him as you should. If you repent, you can be saved, but only through His sheer undeserved grace. That's the gospel. Based on the entire sweep of the Old Testament, it's teaching about the character of God and of human nature. And the more powerful, well-off, and pulled together you think you are, the more offensive and unthinkable such a message is. This is real power. This is real power. The one who has all power and authority. He leverages it. Not to condemn you, but to rescue you. It is. It is a better kingdom. Let's stand together and we'll pray together. And I think maybe a big picture as we respond to what we see here is to simply allow the Holy Spirit to take inventory Say, what kingdom are you living for right now? Oh, Father, I thank you that it's even possible to be a part of the kingdom of God. Father, reveal the places in our lives where repentance is necessary. So thankful, so thankful that you're trustworthy, you don't lie. In fact, the scripture says, you cannot lie. So when you say, if we will confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, you can be trusted. When you say that you've displayed your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, you can be trusted. When you say that we could gain the whole world and forfeit our soul, you can be trusted. So, Father, if we're heading in a direction and living for a kingdom that will only increase the burdens upon us, would you give us grace?
to see there is a better kingdom. And ultimately, there's only one kingdom that will stand. And we're so grateful that our place in that kingdom has been provided for us by grace. Lead us as we respond in Jesus' name. Amen.